Trigger warning. This is a hard-hitting episode which covers topics including mental illness, mental health, suicide, drug abuse and violence. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice. This content is for informational purposes only. You are advised to refrain from listening to this episode or podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. So listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Georgie. And I'm VG. Welcome to our podcast, Diversity and Inclusion, Satisfying the Tip Box. In today's episode, we'll be covering mental health. So we have another very special guest joining us today, um, George Sullivan, who will be sharing his personal journey and experiences with mental health. Um, George, if you could just give us a quick introduction, let the listeners know who you are and a bit about your story. Yeah, of course. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. Um, It's a real pleasure. So my name is George. I'm 25 years old and I live in Banstead in Surrey. Uh, I'm the middle child of an older sister and a non-binary younger sibling. And I live currently live with my mum and dad. Uh, I grew up in an all boys state school um, and used to be quite an avid footballer, which led to me Uh, securing a sport and academic scholarship to the United States to play soccer. Um, After that not working out, I then came back to the UK and went to Oxford Brooks University, where I studied business and management. Um, And following that, and from my own experiences, I am now a mental health and suicide prevention public speaker. Uh, I have my own talk show called Sully's Open Conversation, and I'm also the head of operations at Optimal Minds, which is a psychological strategy consultant. That's very cool. Um, I have actually been on the talk show. It's a fabulous one. Definitely go and check it out. Yeah, George, could you just give a bit of background on you kind of growing up and just on your, your mental health struggles? Yeah, so I suppose I first encountered what I didn't know was depression and suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts. I was about 14 years old. Um, And I kind of mentioned that I grew up in an all boys state secondary school because um, I feel like that's quite a key component to the environment in which I grew up in. Toxic masculinity is 120% a thing. We were kind of taught to not really talk about our emotions. If you did show your emotions, it was kind of a sign of weakness, which still occurs in society today so there was kind of a lot of let's call it banter but some people can either take it better than others I suppose um so it kind of started from there but I was getting incredibly negative down suicidal thoughts um and I at 14 15 years old began self-harming and and kind of was starting to plan suicide which obviously at that age you may find shocking some people may not because It can on set as young as kind of 10 years old. But from then, uh, I was lucky enough to be spotted by a teacher because I was kind of walking out of lessons a lot, uh, was being less responsive. And I got to see a school counsellor. So talking about my problems to actually someone, I kept it from my parents. I didn't want my parents to know. I was very ashamed and embarrassed. So being able to have that outlet to talk to someone about the struggles was definitely 
allowed me to understand them more and allowed me to process my emotions. And then I got back into football. I was injured at the time. So the physical exercise, of course, as well as the talking therapy allowed me to really improve my mental health. Fast forward to March 2020, I was, uh, which was the start of lockdown, um, which was obviously a, a very horrible time for a lot of us. Um, we were locked in our homes, couldn't go out and see friends. I was actually on placement at the time. So I was in my third year at university then and I was furloughed. So for everyone that doesn't know what that is, that's I, I, I wasn't working, but I was fortunate enough to still be paid. However, that then left me to my own thoughts. I didn't have any distraction anymore. I was living a kind of very intense, uh, intense lifestyle going out a lot, working a lot and not really having the time to myself. Um, So when that did happen, those thoughts started to come back again and I didn't really know what to do with them. So unfortunately, because of that, I then started to abuse alcohol and drugs to get rid of those thoughts, to try and numb them Um, away from the view of my parents. I was doing them in my bedroom quite secretly a lot. And then I started to break down and my parents didn't know why. I didn't know why. Again, it was very difficult to get psychological help at that point because obviously lockdown, COVID, um, the health services were under a lot of pressure. So that continued until I then returned to university in September 2021, uh, 2020, sorry. Uh, so I continued to do the same. We, I, I was with my friends. We continued to drink, take drugs um, until one night where... I had a, so it's a ketamine induced psychotic episode occurred. Um, For those of you that don't know the effects of ketamine, it's basically a dissociative drug. So it essentially can distort your perception of reality to make it feel as though you are in a film or like a video game. So like life isn't real. Um, It also causes you to have delusions. So because I didn't think this was real, I thought the only way of getting out was to end my own life. So on the walk back from a friend's house after having some drinks and all that sort of stuff, I tried to run it in front of a car, um, which my two friends who were walking home with me at the time uh, stopped me from doing. They pulled me back, but were obviously incredibly scared. So we got into my flat uh, where I continued to have these delusions and um, attempted to try and stab myself with a kitchen knife, which again, they fought off me um and while one of them was outside my room trying to call the police they locked me in my room with another with with one of the others uh during this time I was pretty dead set that I had to end my life there and then It, it had to be then um it kind of the element of the alcohol and drugs gives you that there isn't that barrier to tell you this is totally wrong this this isn't what you should be doing so I threw a glass at my friend's head to distract him Um, And while that happened, I ran to the window of my university flat. I climbed onto the neighbor's roof. I ran over that roof and dived off. Um, I didn't stop to look over the roof. I didn't kind of think about what I was doing. It was I was dead set on that's exactly what I wanted to do. And that's exactly what I aimed to do was to end my life. Um, It was about three stories. So it fell about 25, 30 feet. Uh, onto what I thought was going to be the pavement below. 
However, because of the trajectory of my jump and I was so dead certain, I actually ended up hitting a parked car before I hit the pavement, which ultimately probably saved my life. I woke up in hospital with cuts, bruises. Um, I've got a six inch scar down my stomach, which I probably will have for the rest of my life. I had a punctured lung. Um, I was incredibly lucky to not have be paralyzed or, or shattered my pelvis. Um, and I was even luckier to still be alive. My parents obviously were at home at the time and I was at university. So they received a call on the door uh, by the police at about four o'clock in the morning saying your son's just jumped off a roof um, and is in critical care. So they then jumped in a car um, to come and see me in hospital and took me home, which, of course, I was still at university at this point. Um, and for some reason, I think I wanted the distraction more than anything. None of us wanted to admit that it was potentially an attempt at suicide. Um, we all just thought it was this freak incident. And that's unfortunately what we all like to think is the, is, is the best of it, because thinking of the worst is actually a horrible thing to do. Um, but it was it was that realistically. Um, however, it was very difficult for any of us to talk about. Uh, I wanted to push it away. And certainly if my parents thought I wanted to push it away and didn't accept that, then um, that is how it will be. So after two weeks uh, of being at home, I actually returned to university, um, had some extenuating circumstances on my work. Um, so I got some extensions. Uh, but I basically used my university work to distract myself from what I what had just happened and, and what I had attempted. So I continued my university work. Uh, pretty much a nine to five and then smoked a lot of cannabis in the evenings to numb the pain and numb the thoughts and basically stop myself from from experiencing that post-traumatic stress uh, so I went through the whole of university um, ended up graduating with a first which obviously I'm extremely extremely proud of um, but then that distraction stopped so I no longer had the work to focus on. I was living at home. I was then starting to work again. So I was driving about an hour and a half each way to work, which meant that I was left with my own thoughts. And the post-traumatic stress started to set in. Um, I became incredibly depressed, uh, incredibly, incredibly angry, um, distant, just the real telltale signs of mental health deterioration, mental illness, and then eventually into mental health crisis. Um, so it was only until I was away with friends in Bristol that I had an argument with one of them in the nightclub and I punched a wall and broke my knuckle. So in that time, uh, a couple of days later, I went to A&E to check and it was in A&E where I was approached by a nurse and said, kind of, what happened? What did, what did you do? What's going on? Um, and I broke down. Uh, that at that point, I was about a week away from attempting suicide again. I was planning to take my own life. Um, I knew if I had left that A&E room that I was going to go and start self-harming again. So I knew that this was kind of the, my only opportunity to really get the help I needed. Um, I didn't know I needed that help, though. You must You must remember that when you're actually that ill and consumed by your thoughts that you don't really know that something is wrong it sounds very strange but you're kind of not in your own head not in your own body um so I was admitted into hospital and I spent two weeks in a specialist ward uh for mental illness where I was 
given antidepressants. So I started on 100 milligrams of sertraline, which is an SSRI. So that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is a very common form of antidepressant. There's obviously different names for them and and, and different drugs. Um, But I was then discharged from hospital after two weeks after massively improving in my mood, motivation. Really weirdly, like after a week of taking the drugs, it felt like this really dark, stormy cloud in my mind had began to began to fade away and that you could start to see the sunlight again. Things colours actually looked a bit brighter. I had more energy, more motivation. I started to eat better, um, sleep better. It was actually pretty amazing. But obviously that's that's just the day to day allowing me to cope. The drugs do the real the real hard work was um, the psychotherapy. So when I was discharged, I had about five months of psychotherapy uh, where I really got to understand and process my emotions and thoughts and the traumas that I'd been through from the ages of 13, 14 to, to how old I am now. So through that, yeah, that that's the real hard work that gets you to a far better place. The drugs allow me to cope on a day-to-day Um, I do see a massive difference if I do miss taking my medication for a day, even if it's four or five hours later, I can tell there's a real drop in my mood. Um, But that is unfortunately kind of the biology and genetics of it. Uh, So there's a lot of mechanisms and strategies that I've learned during therapy that allow me to recognize that I'm having a suicidal thought or a negative thought. Um, and ways in which I can then turn those or flip those or or counteract them um, in ways that are positive. So that's kind of, yeah, um, my story. I'm now I'm now in a much better place. I, I was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which means a, a, a key thing of that that disorder is that I have fluctuant mood swings. So for two days, I might be incredibly self-motivated. I might feel really self-important, um, really sociable. And then two days later, I'll be in a depressive slump. I mean, for the past two days, I've literally not been able to leave my bed. Um, just watched. You have to look after yourself. And uh, and being mentally ill is just as bad as being physically ill, really. you You have to look after yourself and you have to have that time to really rehabilitate and allow your body to kind of heal um so now i'm i've I've worked my way down to 25 milligrams of sertraline which is pretty amazing from just a year ago uh, but i still see myself being on them for a long time yet and i am actually going back to therapy um to continue just i, I wouldn't say i'm struggling again it's just that sometimes there are things that need a professional perspective to shine the light on and then allow you to process it yourself, really. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my story. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks for sharing all that, George. It was um, I'm really sorry that you had to go through all that, and I'm I'm thank you for coming on today, even if you were you've been feeling awful the past two days. Thank you. I, I mean, it, it's it's so important that I know I know I know that there are a lot of people out there that uh, have have gone through the same or similar and feel as though they can't talk about it or they don't know how to talk about it so just having yeah. that ability to use my own experience to encourage or or make people feel more safe and supported then I, I would 100% do it 100% and I'm 
I fully understand kind of the part that you said about not feeling like you're really in your own body because I went through um, quite a bad depression when I was around 14, 15, which is still relatively um, young. And you kind of, I think it's just, you don't really want to help yourself or you don't really know how to help yourself. Yeah, you you know something's wrong, but it's just kind of taking that first step, isn't it? You've also got those kind of negative bombarding thoughts like... You've just got to think of like the worst positive, like the worst mental attitude, but it's not that it's an illness. So it's like, it's not that you don't recognize it. It's the fact that like, oh, no one can help or no one will help, or I don't want any help or that nothing will help. Like I'm just stuck like this for the rest of my life. It's quite, it's, it's really isolating and suffocating, isn't it? And I wanted to say, George, as well, thank you for, for sharing your story because it's quite personal what you've, what you've just said and you, you've gone through a lot. And I, w- I want to take it back in terms of you mentioned self-harming. Yeah. In, can you tell us more about, you know, what you went through in terms of self-harming if, 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 you, if you're able to? And the reason why I'm asking this is so that our listeners can identify signs of self-harm. Yeah. Um, so what, what should they look out for? Of course. So certainly with mine I was you do it in private so if you're spending a lot if or if someone is spending a lot of time in private or in their bedroom with their door shut and things like that sometimes it can be late at night when people are all in bed which of course is very difficult but the real signs that I suppose I I did the the things that I did in order to make people not notice was kind of always wearing long sleeve tops or always wearing under armors even if it's boiling hot I would be wearing them because it would be hiding my arms um yeah I think that's that that's probably the main one it's it's obviously very different for different people my self-harm wasn't that I wanted to end my life at that point it was actually more about self-punishment it was more about I didn't think I was good enough I didn't think I was right in society um, and for that reason, I started to punish myself by self-harming, um, which obviously self-harm can be different for other people. It could be also turn into an attempt to take their own life. Um, but yeah, it, it, in, in my perspective, certainly, certainly really look out for just a, a dull mood, certainly being more reserved. Maybe if they are quite outgoing, if they seem more reserved and 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 distant as well not really paying attention not really being connected in the room I I I think because I start to notice my own my own self-harms and and suicidal tendencies and it's think it's little things like potentially having health problems that I then don't go and get checked out or I or I just leave that's kind of a form of self-harm because you're just you know something could be wrong and you just don't go and get it checked out you're just like oh well that's just another thing wrong with me so it can be it can it can present itself in so many different ways and I always say in mental health that it's so unique to the individual our brains and our personalities are so unique to us that one person may present it in totally different way to another and I think that's quite important because everyone is so different. Um, this ties in nicely then into, you know, for parents, what advice would you give to parents who have children that are going through um, or suffering with mental health or mental health illness? My first thing is education. 110% it's education. Learn about it. Go and research. Um, the worst thing that you can be when you are ill yourself 
is have is feeling as though people don't understand you because they're not going through what you're going through and as a parent being able to research and really understand how the illness may present itself and how the child may be feeling or how someone may be feeling is so crucial to knowing how to then counteract it or do something to 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 distract them from it or it, it yeah so certainly education for starters also comp- compassion and empathy is a massive thing and in mental health especially it's compassion is pretty strong because it's not you don't have to go through it yourself to know or, or feel as though you can then um console someone so you don't have to have felt it yourself but to know that how painful or how horrible it can be for someone else to then just like be there to support them be that shoulder another thing is i i always i could always shy away because I wasn't asked directly how I was feeling and, and and what I was going through. I understand as a parent, you don't want to be intrusive into your kids' lives and it's important to give them that space and freedom. But I certainly think being more attentive and, and maybe, maybe it's not as, it's not as kind of as such a big sign, but it's noticing little differences that might, might be adding up to make a big difference um so definitely asking the questions it was so easy for me to hide away because I wasn't being asked and especially it's become so accustomed to our society now to just say like when you meet someone you're just like oh how are you um and you just say oh I'm fine thanks how are you or I'm good thanks how are you we rarely ever then go actually respond with actually I'm feeling pretty bad today I'm I'm not in a good place and because of that and because of that custom of just batting it off as as if it is just a greeting and just saying hello um we're not getting to the roots and we're not actually delving deeper we're not getting to that deeper connection where you're then and every single conversation I've had where someone's been like I'm not actually feeling you you get to know them better like you actually are making that human emotional connection that we all have but have for some reason neglected or forgotten about yeah I think that's so true I think you you always just say, oh, yeah, I'm all right, thanks, even though you're going through some serious struggles. And I think going back to the, the parenting aspect, um, shout out to my mum because she everything you said that she kind of did. But I think the education part, I think 10 years ago or whenever it was that I went through it, there, there wasn't as much out there. And wow. I think now it's such – it is much more of a normal thing now than it was back then there's so many places that you can go and look kind of online or even just calling up people just to ask these questions I think I think also as a parent you don't want to be kind of intrusive because you don't want your your kid to kind of be like yeah I'm fine like leave me alone yeah exactly and you do get stroppy teenagers like it's a time where you're going through hormones and things as well and I'd be lying if I said I didn't think hormones were playing a part when I was that young as well um but it's an it's an amalgamation of things and and mental illness especially it it, it's got so many different factors it's biological it's genetics it's social it's environmental that there are so many influencing factors that can lead to someone developing a mental illness that you can't just say it's one particular thing there are so many different things that 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 lead up to it and 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 can cause it yeah, 100%. I think, what are some of your 
kind of coping mechanisms? I know you spoke about the medication aspect and how yeah. that helped you and helped you to cope. Is there anything, I don't know if you want to speak a bit about medication and other things that kind of helped you to cope? Yeah, so I think it's quite interesting to highlight that coping mechanisms can both be good and bad, just so that we're coping is kind of a different way of managing, I suppose. Um a lot of I, I do get quite anxieties. I have a horrible habit of biting my nails to the point where they do just bleed. And that's, I suppose, a bad coping mechanism in ways of dealing with stressful angst and, and anxious situations. Um, some of my po- more positive things, um, I practice mindfulness. So mindfulness is so crucial. And mindfulness is all about staying and being in the pre- being present. And that's being in the moment. It's not just like, do you know, sometimes say you go on holiday or you, or you, you do something fun on the weekend and the weekend's gone and you're like, Jesus, that's just passed so quickly. And I feel like I feel like it hasn't happened. And that's because you're not as present as you should be. You're not in the moment. You're obviously there, but mentally and emotionally, you're not aligned with what you're experiencing. Um, so certainly mindfulness, especially walking in nature. Um, I never really used to do. Um, I was kind of forced to do it. But actually, I feel as though if people did really start to get into a routine of going and walking in national parks and things like that, that it's just it's just beautiful. You, you, you can then connect with nature as well. And nature heals you. The sound of the birds, crunch of leaves, the sound of wind. If there's sun shining, we need our vitamin D. That that is a beautiful way of grounding for me and it's a form of meditation a lot of people think meditation is you have to sit there and not think but actually the whole point about meditation is noticing thought it's noticing that you're having those things going through your mind and just letting them pass away just not letting letting yourself worry about them yeah I think um I did this thing called forest bathing and you basically you're just taking in all your surroundings and being really present and it's something that you can take away on like any walk that you do it doesn't have to be in the woods um exactly but I think it's important to kind of I think we have a habit in this day and age to just put a podcast on or have these things kind of flooding into your distract us Yeah, yeah so it's a lot of um I've forgotten the word now there's a lot of distraction and and just just things that are, are bombarding you we we live in a, a very intense society um our work has been far too overstressed um humans think that our kind of or, or a lot of us think that our one purpose is to work and achieve the best status we can in our jobs which of course is amazing and that that's a good means to kind of keep you motivated but that isn't that isn't our purpose obviously everyone has a different purpose but just to work or to be worked is that's that's not the solution and can just end up either making your mental health worse um or act as a distraction from the troubles that you are having 100 percent, george and i think we have to put ourselves first in terms of you know taking that time out to rest and mental well-being it's it's spoken quite a lot but putting into action is is quite is even more important i'd say I wanted to cover, George, with you, what's the, in terms of language surrounding mental health, can you, are there any issues or terms that, you, that you'd recommend people should not use or should use? Or yeah, what's the yeah. myths surrounding mental health in it, general? What, what, what do you think these myths are and how, how can we debunk them? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting conversation. And actually, 
if you if if you haven't experienced the system um or or been a part of it then it's actually things that might people might subconsciously say or or might feel as though they're saying the right thing but actually can end up making someone who is struggling or or mentally ill feel worse um so i just wanted to go over so mental health especially so mental health in the corporate environment has been mixed up with mental illness as well and i have to stress that there's two very different things um mental health everyone has it it's like our physical health everyone has mental health um mental health can be good and bad uh the definition that i know of mental health is it's your psychological emotional and social well-being um whereas mental illness is more about uh disorders or delusions or um kind of well things that things that are affected through genetics um uh your your environment there are so many different so so poor mental health can then lead to mental illness but mental health and mental illness are two incredibly incredibly different things that's that's definitely one one thing that i stress because anxiety and stress are part of mental health but if it becomes very overwhelming and then begins to impact your day-to-day life that's when it can come into being poor mental health and then into mental illness um so that's quite that's quite a big stressor that i have to definitely say especially in corporate environments because mental health is just this umbrella that they've shoved everything into and it's not like that at all um there's another thing because of my own so these are my own experiences of course um but i've heard them said to other people as well and it's not necessarily that the people know that they're saying the wrong thing and i feel like that's the crucial thing to highlight in society is that it's not necessarily that you're purposely saying it to 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 negatively impact someone it's that we're just not aware um so a lot of the time we can have our struggles invalidated so just because you can't see what's going on it's all going on in our mind of course sometimes it can present itself physically um but saying kind of things like uh are you just seeking attention that's been said to me before or things like you'll get over it this is an illness um just think of it as kind of things that are uh, physical illnesses as well you don't just get over them it takes time to manage rehabilitate really kind of improve um and invalidating struggles by saying like look at look at everything you have um what 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 would your friends and family think or or look at the people that you you'll leave behind um that's pushing the problem away from their internal troubles and trying to portray it onto look you you're doing all right in life so why why do you think it's okay to have these problems basically um and that totally invalidates the struggles i was as an example, I was having a really interesting and lovely conversation. We had a we had a plumber come in the other day um, and he was so kind of really interested in in what I had to say. And, and I actually ended up telling him the exact same story um, of my experience. And without him noticing or thinking, he just responded with like, oh, but that wouldn't kill you, would it? And without him noting and 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 the thing was he want he wanted to be compassionate like he wanted to understand and he wanted to really 
know what was going on with me and he did it did seem like he cared but that comment in that setting is like totally invalidating that takes away everything from the fact that like what I was feeling what exactly I wanted to do um how ill I was and just said like oh but like that that probably wouldn't kill you and it's just like damn <laughs> yeah um. <laughs> I think that's why like language is just so important and how you approach people to talk about because people want to talk about it and you just want to make it more of a normal thing don't you like exactly you don't want to you want to normalize the conversation you want to you, like and the more you do speak about it the only reason why people don't know that there's a problem in saying those kind of things is because they've never been confronted with that conversation before um yeah. and that's why it's so important to start even if you're not struggling with your mental health or if you just have kind of a stressful or anxious day, just speaking about that in conversation, it, it, it will make you feel better therapeutically. Um, that's what happens a hell of a lot. Like speaking about your struggles actually allows you to get them out there, but it also normalizes the conversation. It attunes people's hearing and thinking to then, diving into those kind of conversations so when you are confronted with it again you know you you know how to compose yourself and you know you know what's better to say and what maybe you should avoid saying and things like that so definitely and again we can't desensitize people from the conversation so you can't it's a fine line of course and and who is to say what is that line but making sure that you don't just desensitize people so that oh it's just another one kind of thing you can't you can't get to that point but having the strength and courage to talk about your mental health in a social setting to allow people to understand that it is okay to talk about it and that will then allow people to understand the language that's so again in terms of language commit suicide I never ever say commit anymore ever say commit the reason why people say commit is because I think it was in the early 1900s or something it was a it was a crime to commit suicide that's why it's commit suicide so it's far more far more compassionate to be to say that they took their own life or they died by suicide because committing again you commit murder you, you commit a crime and unfortunately the only crime involved in suicide is the fact that someone was so ill and felt that like there was no help or no one that they could speak to that that was their only way out yeah you're you're so so right I think when you put it like that I've never really thought of that phrase in that kind of way as committing a crime committing suicide it's quite when you put it like that it's really um it's really powerful and I know you do a lot of work kind of going into different businesses and different schools um to kind of give talks on mental health could you tell us a a little bit more about that and the kind of reactions that you've had yeah of course um that's so the talks is definitely the thing that I want to continue pushing because like I said education is the first step in breaking down stigmas stereotypes discriminations as long as we are more educated that allows us to form a better opinion and um awareness of topics where you may not realize that you are discriminating or stigmatizing something um so 100% my focus is on secondary schools uh I do my suicide prevention talk so I talk about my lived experience um tailor it to different year groups of course I don't want to 
I don't want to scare year sevens. <laughs> um, but the older older through the school, I then do to make the story more raw and more real and and more accurate to detail. Um, but other than so, so that's all about early education, because that's my, my exact thinking for it is I wish that I had someone to come into my school and tell me that story when I was that age, because then I would have definitely spoken up. I would have definitely done something about it because there was nothing there because there was no education. I didn't know. I I, I didn't know where to go to. Um, I also then tailor the talks as well. So if it's workplace, I do a lot on stress and anxiety because they are stress, anxiety and depression are the most common reasons for people um, uh, taking days off work. So sickness leave. And that might mean that they aren't actually disclosing that to their company. Uh, if they have, a day off because of their mental health they're likely to say oh I just kind of have a bug or feel sick or or they're not actually likely to tell the reason so it's about creating a culture and environment that is safe and supportive for people to actually be able to talk about their mental health um, I do similar in schools as well so uh, recently I did a talk to um, Glynn School Sick Form which was actually the secondary school that I went to um, and a lot of that was tailored about stress and anxiety of A-levels and exams. Um, looking back now, I definitely was feeling a lot of stress and I'm sure all of us did during that time. Exams are a hell of a lot of pressure. Um, it's a big change in your life. Then going into maybe secondary education, uh, higher education to university or, or going off doing work, going traveling. There's a lot of stressful stuff going on at that age. And if you're not if you're not aware and if you're not understanding of the emotions and feelings that you're that are going through your body at the time, you're kind of like, what's wrong with me? Or, or it builds up and can end up overflowing um, and amalgamating into things that can so easily be prevented if there was just the education there in the first place. Thank you, George. And um, George, I just want to say as well from the comment that you made as a former policeman, what you said about committing suicide and the term used, that's incredibly powerful. And it's, it's made me think. And the reason why I'm saying that it's made me think is because as a former police officer, I've attended numerous incidents where someone has attempted to take their own lives. And I think that there's a ripple effect. It doesn't just impact that person or their family, but also everyone who's involved afterwards around the ecosystem so officers uh, paramedics or the ambulance everyone and personally and again this is I just want to make it clear that this is a personal opinion I don't think that police should be dealing with this because they're only trained uh, to an extent and I think professional medicals should be able to deal with mental health or mental illness related incidents I just wanted to mention as well, you said about creating that safe and supportive environment. What or how can this be done in the, in, in the workplace, for example? So thank you. Thank you very much, Vijay. And definitely this is a top down approach. Um, you see it in society. You see it in businesses. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult for someone at the bottom of the hierarchy to try and push through initiatives, push through structures and and, and projects that get that level of care and attention like I said everyone has mental health so trying to just push it on the or associates or, or lower down the hierarchy does it doesn't suit it, it it's for everyone like it has to be for everyone so certainly creating initiatives um 
I, I, I so with my comp- company at Optimal Minds, we call ourselves a psychological strategy consultant because we're actually focusing on executives and managers understanding and processing their own emotional intelligence and awareness to then project it onto their teams, speak about their mental health, about their teams, which then starts to create an environment. If your manager, if your um, superior uh, responds badly to something that, of an emotive or emotional um, topic, then you're far less likely to talk to them about it. You just, and, and this is the exact same thing with um, mental illness, mental health. If you're struggling um, and you reach out to someone and they neglect or reject your outreach, the chances of them then feeling as though they cannot talk to anyone or it reinforces their negative thoughts to say that no one does care, no one can help. It just reinforces it. So you, it, it's all about that compassion, compassion and empathy. It's so, so important. And I understand that compassion and empathy can actually, it forms when we're a child. They do really interesting studies of kids playing in nurseries and sharing toys or snatching toys. And that is a really good indicator of the empathy and compassion that you then grow up to develop as well. It's, indif- it's incredibly difficult to change, but I, 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 I wouldn't say it's impossible. I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. So a top down approach is, is really how it will spread across and disseminate across the masses in teams, corporates that kind of thing definitely yeah I think it is kind of it's beginning to be a huge kind of it needs to be a responsibility of managers and of like leadership teams yeah because I just I think this is such a taboo topic in the workplace isn't it you don't really tend to go and talk to your colleagues about your your mental health struggles um, and it should definitely be a normalized thing so I think what you're doing is is absolutely amazing George and I think we we need more people doing things like this just to kind of yeah spread the awareness just we we always ask our guests this last question um and it is if you could give one key takeaway from this episode to the audience what would it be wow (laughs) it's it's a it's a big question isn't it (laughs) I, i i suppose i like to stress it a lot and it's about education and compassion and empathy just because you're not going through it, it doesn't mean someone else isn't. Um, we have, and I and I know it can get into a touchy subject talking about ego, but our ego does like to protect us from our surroundings and keep us in a comfort zone. And our ego likes to think that we're totally capable of handling a situation if someone is suicidal or really struggling. Um, but from my experience... I'd, I'd probably say that they are their their ego is getting in the way. There could be a lot more done, especially in terms of then educating yourself um, on illnesses and and how to properly have the conversation. There are so many charities out there that actually pose different ways of asking your friend or family how to um, talk about your mental health or if you're struggling. The interesting thing is that. It was another myth uh, to say about debunking. Asking about suicide, if you're worried about someone um, and you think they might be suicidal or thinking they might be thinking about attempting suicide, asking them isn't going to plant a seed. 
it's actually going to show them that you're willing and able and compassionate enough to have a conversation of such a topic. It can be very hard hitting. It can be very difficult, but it shows that you have that empathy and compassion to really care about someone's well-being in their life. At the end of the day, it, it's a life-threatening illness. Um, that's 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 the be-all and end-all, really. Empathy and compassion and just education. Thank you, George. And uh, thank you for coming on our podcast. It's been super impactful. And I, I know for a fact that this is going to educate a lot of the listeners as well. So thank you for coming on our podcast. And that's all for today's episode on mental health with our amazing guest, George, where we discussed his personal journey as well as how we can create a safer, more supportive workplace environment. Yeah, thank I just you. also wanted to, to say thank you, George. Um, You've spoken so openly about your experiences and touched on some really um, important areas. And yeah, thank you to our listeners for joining us this week. Please make sure you're following the podcast on Spotify um, and feel free to give it a rating and review too. Finally, before we go, I just wanted to give a shout out to George's Sully's Open Conversation. It's about having these conversations and breaking down the stigma of mental health. Feel free to go and check this out on all platforms. If you're affected by what was covered in this episode, then please reach out to resources and organisations like Samaritans, Calm, Papyrus UK, or talk to the person you trust most. But if I can emphasise anything, please do not stay silent. With a festive period around the corner, let's be more kind to each other. Our next episode will be dropping shortly, so keep your eyes peeled. And thank you again, and we'll see you next time on Diversity and Inclusion, Satisfying the Tick Box. Thank you.